It's 9pm in the City of London. On a Saturday evening in 1666 at Thomas Farriner's Bakery near London Bridge. It's the bell. I've hardly finished cleaning the oven. Well, it's never nine o'clock. They rings that curfew bell earlier every evening. You should tell that to the parish. I spoke to them. We're happy to eat our bread. Just don't care that we have time to make it. I'll finish up here, Master Farriner. You go upstairs to your daughter. The curfew bell rang every night in the city, telling the people to put out their flames and candles. The authorities were petrified of fire, and with houses standing cheek by jowl and made of wood and the streets full of straw and animal dung, the city was a tinderbox. Thomas Farriner's bakery stood on Pudding Lane, a busy thoroughfare named for the butchers of Eastcheap who would drag cartloads of offal down the street to the riverside waste barges. In the 1600s, offal was known as pudding, giving the street its name. Pudding Lane was so busy with butchers' trolleys that it was made into the first one-way street in Britain. The Farriner family lived above the bakery. That Sunday evening, widower Farriner and his children headed upstairs as usual. Farriner's daughter, Hannah, candle in hand, checked everything downstairs and made her way to bed. Pudding Lane is deserted now and the great city is at rest. Mr Farriner, Anna, wake up! What's this smoke? It's coming from downstairs. The bakery, it's burning. We're trapped, we're trapped. The only way out is through the roof. Come on, Hannah. Through the window? Yes. Help me open this shutter. Hannah, you first. Help. Help, somebody, help. Son, help. you next. All right, Dad. I'm out, Dad. I'm out. I'm all right. Bessie, come on. I'll pull you up. I can't do it, sir. I can't make it. Yes, help. you can. Come on. Help, no, help. you go. I can't cross that roof. It's too high. Take my hand, Bessie. No, sir, you go. Bessie! <laughs> the fire engulfed the bakery. The Farriner family escaped across the rooftops. Poor maid Bessie, too frightened to climb up and away, perished in the smoke. The first victim of the fire of London. The sparks leapt to neighbouring houses. The haphazard jigsaw terrace of wooden buildings started to burn. The half-asleep residents of Pudding Lane threw on their clothes and rushed into the streets. London's burning. London's burning. A few roads away, on Seething Lane, at the home of the great diarist Samuel Pepys, in the early hours of the morning, the maids were working in the kitchen, preparing a great dinner planned for later that Sunday. What's that strange light over the river? That ain't right. I shall wake Master Peeps. Maid Jane called us up about three in the morning to tell us of a great fire they saw in the city. I slipped on the nightgown and went to the window. I thought it far enough off and went to bed again and to sleep. While the Peeps house slept, the residents of Pudding Lane fought to contain the blaze. Among the citizen firefighters was Thomas Farriner and his family, using whatever was at hand to quench the flames. Buckets of water, cartfuls of dung, 
shovelfuls of earth, even beer, milk and urine. Londoners were used to fighting fires. Its residents working together to save their homes, livelihoods and their city. The long and devastating history of London burning meant the capital was equipped with 60 mechanical fire engines, described as... Engine artificial, wrought with screws made of copper and brass, made for the casting of water. Large cylinders of water, pumped by hand to douse the flames. 28 men and 8 horses heaved the local engine towards Pudding Lane. But the muddy, cobbled streets were crowded with people fleeing the blaze. The engine never arrived, but the parish constables did. Oh, my end of days! The old street is burning! The constables hurried to the Lord Mayor's house. Sir Thomas! Sir Thomas! In God's name, what's all that knocking? Sir Thomas, most sorry the disturbance, your lordship. There is a most engulfing fire by London Bridge. By the time Mayor Thomas Bloodworth arrived, he found chaos and confusion. The fire was consuming the warehouses along the river. Normal practice would be to grab the long hook poles kept ready in the parish churches and to pull down rows of houses to create a firebreak. We have men ready to take down the street here to break the fire, your lordship. Have you spoken to the owners? They're not here, sir. These are the tenants. Pish! To my sight, tis nothing. I will be abed and it will all be burned out by the morning. But your lordship! You bring me from my sleep for this candle flame. A woman could piss it out. And so, the blustering Bloodworth went off home to bed. Too fearful of the landlord's wrath to pull down their houses without permission. And if it were not for his dithering, a fire that might have been contained burnt all through Sunday. About seven rose again and to dress myself. And Jane comes to me that she hears that above 300 houses have been burned down. So I made myself ready and walked to the tower and there got up upon one of the high places. I did see the houses at the end of the bridge on fire, an infinite of fire, which did trouble me. So I down to the waterside and there got a boat. Going through the bridge, saw the lamentable fire. Everyone endeavouring to remove their goods, flinging them into the river or bringing them into lighters. Poor people staying in their houses as long till the fire touched them, and then running into boats or clambering from one pair of waterside stair to another. Among other things, the poor pigeons, I perceive, were loath to leave their houses but hovered above the windows and balconies until they were burned and fell down. All through God's Sunday, the fire spread from house to house. Locals fleeing their homes and hurrying across London Bridge. The only crossing of the River Thames in those times. To the South Bank, where they watched their city burn. The wind mighty high driving the fire into the city even the very stones of the churches. Among other things, the poor steeple took fire at the very top, burned, 
till it fell down. St. Lawrence Poutney Church was one of the tallest monuments in the city. Its collapse, viewed as an omen of worse to come, spurred Peeps to action. To Whitehall in my boat, and there I did give an account to the King and Duke of York, and that unless His Majesty did command houses to be pulled down, nothing could stop the fire. They seemed much troubled, and the King commanded me to go to the Lord Mayor and tell him to spare no houses, and that if he would have more soldiers, he shall. Pepys jumped into a coach, taking him back east to the city. But at St Paul's Cathedral, his way was blocked by... Every creature coming away laden with goods to save, goods carried on backs, and sick people carried away in beds. He was forced to continue on foot, fighting his way through the crowds. At last met with the Lord Mayor. Giving him the King's message, he cried like a fainting woman. Lord, what can I do? I am spent. People will not obey me. I have been pulling down houses, but the fire overtakes us faster than we can do it. His Majesty will provide more troops. No, sir. There is no need for that, Master Peeps. And with that, the Mayor once again went missing in action. By Sunday afternoon, the city was consumed by a raging firestorm. So powerful it created its own weather. A giant cauldron of super hot air funneling into the sky, sucking the atmosphere from the houses below. The deadly plume of smoke rising a mile high in the sky. On the river, the royal barge brought the king and his brother, the Duke of York, east from Whitehall to inspect the inferno. The royal pair stepped out at Thames Street, right into the front line of the fire. As God's day burned to its fateful end, something had to be done. Land is burned, land is burned. By Monday, the circle of flames had grown to nearly a mile wide. Building by building, consuming the city. The Royal Exchange, a great luxury shopping centre overflowing with wealthy consumer goods, reduced to a smoking shell. The odour of cooked spices and peppers from its expensive stores sweetening the poison there. And with the bankers' houses on Lombard Street aflame, Londoners despaired that their great city would be wiped out. The courtier and diarist John Evelyn wrote, The conflagration was so universal that there was nothing heard or seen but crying out and lamentation, running about like distracted creatures. Merchants, desperate to get their valuables to safety, were at the mercy of street porters and boatmen. Oh, my man, I have one pound for your cart to carry my goods away. A pound? What about this gentleman here in the fine wig? Um, two pounds. What do you say to that, sir? Uh, five pounds. Now that's my final offer. Bring the cart to Fetter Lane and away now. Five pounds? That's a lot to pay. I'll take your goods, sir. 
prepared as you first offered. Now I see some common decency has prevailed. Here, my man, load up my cases and my basket. And no, and no, oh, come back! He has taken my valuable! Well, he did say he would take your goods, sir. Carts, hired for a couple of shillings before the fire, now cost up to £40. A fortune equivalent to roughly £130,000 in modern money. And it wasn't only the flames that endangered wealthy people's property. Amidst this chaos, the turnkeys of Newgate marched their prisoners out from the jail down to the waterfront. Because if they'd been held in the building, they would have been incinerated in their cells. Prisoners escaped from their turnkeys to join the looting. Thousands of thieves run amok in the city streets. As the human wagon train jostled towards the narrow city gates, people panicked in the rush to escape. The magistrates briefly ordered the exits shut. Hoping that the city inhabitants with no hopes of saving anything's left, they might have more desperately endeavoured the quenching of the fire. The plan failed as people fought desperately to save their possessions. I hurried home with a sad heart. We were forced to pack up our own goods for their removal and did so by moonshine. About four o'clock in the morning, a cart came to carry away my money and plate and best things. Me riding in my nightgown in the cart with the streets and highways crowded with people running and riding. I'm eased at my heart to have my best treasure so well secured. I did dig a pit in the garden and put our wine in it, and my best parmesan cheese. Believing his cheese safe from being toasted, Pepys worked to try and save his city. On the eastern edge of the inferno, flames were creeping ever closer to the Tower of London used to store 9,000 barrels of gunpowder. If the blaze reached the building, the explosion would obliterate London. In his job as chief administrator to the Navy, Pepys called for his dockers to save the tower. I did propose for the sending up of all our workmen from Woolwich and Deptford Yards. But he received no reply. By now, the fire could be seen over 100 miles away in Oxford. Amidst the confusion, fear and chaos, the cavalry literally rode in. The lifeguards, led by their commander, the king's brother, James, Duke of York. With Mayor Bloodworth, nowhere to be seen. King Charles put his brother in charge of stopping the firestorm. The king banned the thousands of carts that were blocking the pavements. While the duke set up command posts at the perimeter of the fire. But Pepys noted a worrying mood developing on the streets. The discourse is now begun that there is a plot in it and that the French had done it. With Britain at war with the Dutch and harbouring a long-standing resentment for the French, many Londoners convinced themselves that the fire was a deliberate plot. There were thousands of foreigners in London. Many of them Protestant refugees who had fled Catholic persecution in France and Holland. Mostly skilled artisans, hard-working weavers, carpenters and painters. Anyone with a foreign name or accent was under suspicion. Including the owner of the place where the blaze began. It's all the fault of that baker. That low foreigner. What done it deliberate 
fired it up to kill us all. I've seen them. They throw fireballs in our houses. The mob attacked the house of a French painter. No, no, please leave me. We're going to smash your ass to the ground before you set fire to it and burn your neighbours. Please, please leave me, please, please. And as an unsuspecting Frenchman walked the streets, a blacksmith attacked you French dog. Striking his head with an iron bar, the poor man fell to the pavement with blood flowing down to his ankles. His life saved by four guards who dispersed the gang. Stand away, villains! Who continued their rampage, attacking the Portuguese ambassador's house and accusing him of starting fires. Rather than a fireball, the man was innocently picking up a crust of bread from the street that he'd put on a windowsill. The Portuguese was put in jail for his own safety and quietly released a few days later. The surgeon, Thomas Middleton, claimed he was walking along Modling Street when a young man was thrown out into the road at my feet from a tobacco merchant shop. Oh, good sir. Pardon? Who are you, boy? Are you a Frenchman? No, no, I'm I'm a French and a tobacconist. Is that right? I know him not, sir. What have you here under your coat? A powder horn? Constable, we have an agent of the fire here. The constable dragged the boy to the Bridewell prison through jeering crowds. And he was placed in solitary confinement. The Bridewell burnt down the next day. One of the most horrifying stories involved a market woman at Smithfield selling a basket of chickens. What's she got there? Oh, chickens. They're little chicks. They're little chicks. They're fireballs. Traitor. The crowd attacked her and, according to accounts, hacked her breasts off. On Tuesday morning, the interminable cauldron had reached the River Fleet. At the Duke of York's command post, they hoped the water would be a natural firebreak. But the unstoppable blaze jumped the river. And the firefighters were forced to flee. At the Tower of London, the situation was critical and the garrison desperate. Our lives set upon a powder keg, sir. If these flames run closer, not man nor beast will live. We await orders. Sir, we cannot wait for our soldiers to be blown to pieces. For the tower and all it surrounds will be sent to God's oblivion. Very well. Bring the barrels and blow down these houses. Yes, sir. They blew up. Dozens of houses standing between the fire and the tower. And finally created a break that paused the inferno. The tower saved. There was one more landmark that remained at the mercy of the flames. Everybody hoped that St Paul's Cathedral would be a safe refuge. The church was crammed full of rescued goods. Its crypt filled with the tightly packed papers of the printers and booksellers who worked nearby. From across the river, people looked on in shock and awe. The flames did slowly creep around the church. Coming closer with every moment, we were sure the fire could not jump through the great churchyard But then, the first flames appeared. For sad coincidence, the great old friend was covered in wooden scaffold for repairs done to it. The fire spread across God's house, and within fewer than half an hour did take the whole roof, which appeared to be melting. 
the lead from the mighty roof making rivers down Ludgate Hill. The metal showering down as if it had been snow before the sun. The great stones split asunder and all crashed down. The very pavements glowing with fiery redness that no horse or man was able to tread upon them. The ancient church, symbol of London, was gone. But the wind dropped on Tuesday evening and the firebreaks finally began to take effect. Up at five o'clock, went by water to St Paul's Wharf, walked thence through all the town, burnt, and a miserable St Paul's Church fallen, for the city was the saddest sight of desolation that I ever saw. Our feet ready to burn, walking through town among the hot coal, the town full of poor wretches carrying their goods. Thence to Cheapside and Newgate, all burned. I took up a piece of glass from the Mercer's Chapel, which was so melted and buckled with the heat of the fire, like parchment that I keep with me. I also did see a poor cat taken out of a chimney, with hair all burned off and yet alive. After five days, the Great Fire was over. But as Samuel Pepys noted, it took months until the flames were finally extinguished. I did see smoke remaining, coming out of some cellars from the late Great Fire, now about six months since. 13,200 houses had been destroyed. 70,000 people made homeless. 80% of old London citizens. John Evelyn lamented, London was, but is, no more. But according to records... Only six people actually died in the tragedy. Including the deaf 80-year-old shoe lane watchmaker, Paul Lovell. Father, please come with us. Nothing will bring me from my house. Father, the house is burning. Please. No, I will not leave. Father! Father! The old man's house collapsed, crashing down into its cellar. Where his bones were found, the watchmaker's hand still clutching his keys. A parishioner of St Botoff Allgate dropped dead from fright on Tower Hill. And in the parish of St Mary Woolnoth, the body of Richard Yard was found in his privy, overcome by smoke. The burnt corpse of an unnamed old woman was discovered near St Paul's. With three bodies discovered inside the cathedral itself, mummified by the heat. Nobody was sure if they were victims of the fire who'd sought refuge in the cathedral or bodies that had been buried there for centuries. One was claimed to be a man who died in 1404. But with the city records destroyed, it's very likely that many, many more died in the fire. In the intense heat reaching up to 1,500 degrees Celsius, bodies would have been incinerated, leaving not a trace behind. They are under tents in miserable huts and hovels. Many without a rag or any necessary utensils, bed or board, who from houses are now reduced to extremist misery and poverty. This was John Evelyn describing the scene at Moorfields. A large open area immediately north of the city. Now a refugee camp. One of the many filled with distressed people in tents and makeshift shacks. Some 
camped inside the fire zone in the desperate hope of salvaging anything from their homes. The mood was volatile. Food supplies had been completely disrupted. And fire could easily be followed by famine. King Charles feared that Londoners would rebel against the monarchy. So the king announced that supplies of bread will be brought to the city every day. And markets set up around the perimeter. Life was difficult for the homeless. Particularly the old and the vulnerable. The 70-year-old playwright James Shirley perished at the miserable Moorfields camp. His wife also dying from cold and fright. Many had to rely on the charity of family and friends. Newlywed couple Michael and Betty Mitchell were given temporary accommodation in Shadwell. Others were too impoverished to recover. Mr and Mrs Dunstan of Thames Street couldn't afford to rebuild their property. And like many, left London forever. The camps fueled anger, gossip and rumour. A light in the sky over Fleet Street provoked a story that 50,000 French and Dutch immigrants were marching towards Moorfield to murder and pillage. John Evelyn reported mobs on the street. Taking what weapons they could come at, they could not be stopped from falling on some of those nations whom they casually met, without sense or reason. The rioters were herded back into the fields by the lifeguards. The light turned out to be nothing more than a small outbreak of fire. King Charles rushed out a declaration making it clear that the fire was not a foreign plot. Our people should attend the business of quenching the fire and desist from bringing misery to any who walk among us. The dismal ruins the fire hath made is an act of nature. Nothing but a miracle of the Lord's mercy could have preserved us from destruction. What we have witnessed is the will of God, not the designs of a papist plot. But many suspected the king himself of being a secret papist. Antagonism continued with reports of gangs of English women that did knock down several strangers for not speaking good English. For the Dutch-born goldsmith, Johan van der Marsh, the rumour that the fire had been deliberately started by Flemish arsonists had terrible consequences. Vandermarsh had used his own money to save his street from the flames, but was faced with a wall of prejudice when he tried to keep hold of his damaged property. As one observer put it, the disaster kindled another fire in the breast of men almost as dangerous as that within their houses. To the sad and surprisingly short list of victims of the Fire of London, we must add another name, that of Robert Hubert, a French watchmaker. It's hard to understand why Hubert claimed to have started the fire. Maybe he was unwell, very lightly mentally unbalanced, possibly coerced or even tortured. I did start the fire in the place of Westminster. When you say that place, the fire didn't touch there, Monsieur Hubert. It began near London Bridge. Yes, that is what I say. You mean at the King's Bakery? Yes, the King Baker on Pudding Lane. I make a bomb, a grenade with fire, and with the others we, we stop the watercocks. So this action was taken with accomplices? Yes. And why did you do this? Are you a spy? Yes. I spy. You are a Catholic spy. 
Yes, I spy for the Pope. Hubert claimed that he had put gunpowder and brimstone onto the end of a pole and pushed it through the open window of the Pudding Lane Bakery. The Frenchman named the bakery and described its appearance. But even Fariner, owner of the bakery, admitted that the building had no windows. Hubert was imprisoned at the White Lion Jail in Southwark. And at his Old Bailey trial was accused of... Diabolically, voluntarily, maliciously and feloniously putting a fireball through the window of a bakery in Pudding Lane. But very few people believed that it was he who started the fire. One witness insisted that Hubert was... Only accused upon his own confession and neither the judges nor any present at the trial did believe him guilty, but that he was a poor, distracted wretch, weary of his life, and chose to part with it in this way. Robert Hubert, we find you guilty of setting London aflame and wanton destruction of the great city. And when condemned to death, did not show the fear of God before his eyes, but was moved and led away by the instigation of the devil. Hubert was hanged at Tyburn in London on the 27th of October, 1666. Before his body could be handed over to the company of barber surgeons for dissection, it was torn apart by an angry crowd. To the shame of the city, the captain of the ship that brought the Frenchman to London confessed. Monsieur Hubert did not step from my ship until two days after the fire started. But the Frenchman was the perfect scapegoat. And in 1681, a plaque was erected on the site of the Pudding Lane Bakery. Here, by the permission of heaven, hell broke loose upon this Protestant city from the malicious hearts of barbarous papists, by the hand of their agent Hubert, who confessed. The plaque was only taken down and moved in the 18th century because it blocked the traffic. A similar anti-papist claim remained at the monument until 1830. And thus the Great Fire ended with the Great Lie. And what of the person who was almost certainly culpable for the fire breaking out? The careless baker, Thomas Fariner, claimed that every flame in the bakery was extinguished at the curfew. And on the signed indictment, blaming the Frenchman Robert Hubert for starting the fire, the following names appear. Thomas Fariner, baker of Pudding Lane. Hannah Fariner of Pudding Lane. Legends about the fire spread almost as quickly as its flames. 1666, blamed for being the year of the devil. Two years before the fire, a comet had appeared above London. And superstitious Londoners were convinced it had been an omen. There were rumours of monsters stalking the streets days before the disaster. Beasts bearing the mark of the devil. Vengeance on Sin City, ruled by a debauched king. A country being shown the error of its ways. The high priest of Hellfire, Thomas Vincent, pointed his Puritan finger at the sinning city in his tract, God's Terrible Voice. It was the 2nd of September, 1666, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against London. The Lord thundered in the heavens and came forth against us. Thus fell that ancient city. London departed like smoke. 
her glory laid in the dust. Nations about to gaze and wonder as her citizens droop and hang down their heads. Her women and virgins weep and sit in the dust. This is God's righteousness in punishing London. For here were so many atheists, so many gentlemen that cast off all sentiments of a deity did walk our streets. So many denied the divine authority of the scriptures and reckon themselves by their principles amongst Turks, pagans, and other infidels. The Lord hath visited us with storm and tempest and great noise. Yea, he hath caused his glorious voice to be heard, and the judgment of the fire burned down the city. And with the fire starting at Pudding Lane and ending near Smithfield at a place named Pie Corner, the golden boy or fat boy statue erected there still marks the spot today. With this inscription. This boy is in memory put up for the great fire of London occasioned by the sin of gluttony. And at the Pudding Lane site of the outbreak is architect Christopher Wren's great 202-foot Doric Column. London's permanent monument to the catastrophe. Simply called The Monument. There were plans to put a statue of the King on top of the column. Charles II and his brother had won praise and admiration for taking control of the firefighting. One witness writing, The Duke of York hath won the arts of the people with his continual and indefatigable pains day and night in helping quench the fire. But the King didn't want his likeness at the top of the column. For fear that Londoners would believe that it was I who started the conflagration. The city was rebuilt from the ashes. Christopher Wren's designs for the new St Paul's Cathedral rising 365 feet above London. One foot for every day of the year. But the memory of the fire lived with a generation of Londoners. The image of this terrible judgment has made such an impression in the souls of every one of us that it will not be effaced while we live. And for Samuel Pepys, the man who told the story of the fire, the trauma never left him. Mightily troubled, much terrified in the nights, with dreams of fire and falling down of the houses. A fear in my heart, which to this day, I cannot get out of my head. This Extraordinary Stories of Britain podcast was written and produced by Mark Zakian and narrated by Anthony Robbins, known as Mr Londoner. Peeps and Other Voices, performed by Tony Lewis and Maria Clark. To hear more episodes of our history podcast, visit www.storiesofbritain.com and please subscribe.